This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Welcome to what we call Just the Right Book Shorts, where a couple of times a month, uh, Billy Goldstein and I just, well, we sort of talk about whatever we want, but it's always (laughs) related to books. Uh, Billy's an author. He's a writer, an essayist, a book reviewer on NBC and my pal at at talking about books. So welcome, Billy. Well, thank you, Roxanne. I I, I love that we get to talk about whatever we want to talk about within limits, but yeah. Yeah. uh, Well, maybe, maybe no limits. limits. So, well, (laughs) speaking of limits, this episode that we're recording will air during what's referred to as banned books week and this this week-long thing celebrated by the American Booksellers Association, the American Library Association, has been going on for decades. And there is an increasing urgency about book banning because increasingly school, particularly school libraries, are being decimated in some districts and states by, in some cases, one person who's objecting to a book. And so what I thought you and I would do is talk a little bit about banned books in general. There's a list that we'll post of the top 13 most challenged books of 2022 I was going to talk a little bit about my favorite band book <laughs> and mm-hmm. and and just sort of the general discussion about what's driving this, what does it look like, and the degree to which we need to pay attention. So why don't we start on the American Library Association site and on a, any number of sites are the top 13 most challenged books. And they include books like Gender Queer, a memoir, uh, by Maya Kobabi. I'm not sure I'm saying her last name correctly. The Perks of Being a Wallflower, Looking for Alaska, Lawn Boy, Crank, Me and Earl, and The Dying Girl, This Book is Gay, uh, The Bluest Eye. And one of the things that's pretty easy to pick up on is A lot of the books being challenged recently fall into the category of LBGTQ. They fall into race issues, definitely uh, sexuality. And it made me think about the story that I thought I'd start with. When uh, my family moved from New York to Connecticut, uh, in New York, my parents were recent immigrants and they were afraid of authority, uh, I would say. And so I didn't have a library card in New York. We lived at that point in Washington Heights. So I either got books for my cousins uh, or my parents bought books, which were expensive. You know, we at that point, money was a constraint. 
And when we moved to Hartford, Connecticut, I went to a school called Northwest Jones in the north end of Hartford and nestled right up against the school was a little branch library. I have to look up the name of it. And they let me get a library card without my parents. Hmm. So my parents were comfortable uh, with my doing that. But then it turned out I needed their permission to read in the adult part of the library, which I got. And I, uh, for some reason, I started backwards. <laughs> so the first book I took out from the library was Exodus <laughs> by Leon Uris, which had just recently been published. And, you know, it's a big fat book. It's got sex, drugs, and rock and roll and war and independence. <laughs> and it rearranged my brain to understand the wider world of what reading could provide. And when I think about banned books, as I worked my way from the end of the alphabet backwards, the other book that sticks in my mind that I read in that year was Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. I don't know why that's the other one that sticks in my brain. But the the point was that it was my ability to access anything mm -hmm. that actually fueled my passion for reading. Right. Because it made me realize the wide world outside of Blue Hills Avenue in Hartford, Connecticut in, you know, 1959 and 1960. So I, I can't even fathom the motive behind, I mean, I can fathom, but it feels oxymoronic to the idea of becoming a full, passionate, curious human being to take books away. Right. So what's your take on all this, Billy? Well, I, I, I agree with you completely. And uh, when I look at the list of the current most banned books, as you pointed out, most of them are LGBTQ related. I mean, and then The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. And when you look back over the last few years and then even over the last decades, because the American Library Association website has lists of the most banned books by decade, as well as, you know, mm -hmm. in more recent years. And the the effort, I think, at mind control um, or what everything that you're saying about the way books open the world to you and the way you discover it, that every effort is being made to control what, I guess, teenagers, I mean, and, and then sometimes younger tweens, I guess, know about the world, but only in the most narrow ways. I mean, they it's all about sexuality. It's all about race. And what I thought was very interesting for me in looking back to previous decades lists, as I did on the American Library Association website, is to also see in their books like 1984 and mm. a nonfiction book, which I loved, called Nickel and Dimed by Barbara Ehrenreich. And what that made me think is that it's not only about sexuality, although in so many ways it is it is largely about that and about race. It's also about the effort to stop people from understanding the economic realities of 
this country. I mean, you, you, you don't have to be Republican or Democrat to either hate or love nickel and dimed. I mean, you, there it's, it's one woman's perspective grounded in not only her experience, Barbara Ehrenreich's experience, but also in uh, sociological studies. I mean, it's not, it's not just a memoir. Billy, take a minute to explain what nickel and dime was about, because everybody might not be as familiar with it as some of the other books we might talk about. Well, so Nickel and Dimed was published, I think, about almost 25 years ago now yeah. I mean, by Barbara Ehrenreich. And it's a look at the economic fragility of so many people in this country in the way that that Matthew Desmond's book about housing, I th- was it called Evicted? Was that? Was mm-hmm. that? Evicted uh, in his uh, book on poverty. Poverty. Um, the fragility of, of people's lives, I mean, living even less than paycheck to paycheck in many areas of, of the country, and that uh, the ways in which the system I hate to use this word because it has taken on such different overtones, rigged the way the system is rigged against poor people, not only in their poverty, but in the cost of being poor. I mean, that 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 the cost of being poor is so much greater than uh, than many things are for the middle class, for example. I mean, in the way the ways ways in which at least in nickel and dime people had to live in motels and the the cost of that and and she Barbara Ehrenreich takes on a series of very low paying jobs to explore the lives of these people and how she changing her own life i mean from obviously a middle class or upper middle class woman on assignment is living on the edge in the way that all of these people that she's meeting are. And it's a beautiful, it's a sad, enraging, moving book and, uh, you know, magnificently written and, and uh, you know, devastating to read. What did they even say was the reason for banning it? Well, it, it on this list, it doesn't give uh, a reason. I mean, I think it was that here is a book about economic reality that a lot of people are afraid it's probably seemed communist to them or socialist uh, uh you know any kind of legislation that might help the poor i mean we we know that since the new deal this has been uh, an argument against any kind of social welfare legislation is that it's leading to socialism or communism and 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 i think in barbara Ehrenreich's book i mean i haven't read it recently but you know there's basically a call for for support of these people. And I would venture to remember, I think, you know, or say that my memory is it probably also calls for something about, about you know, national health insurance or, you know, some kind of programs anyway. Uh, mm. I don't know if it says that specifically. And so the effort at mind control to me is so dangerous. And that's certainly what's going on in 1984. I mean, in that novel, and the reason it would be banned is, well, we don't want young people or other people to know that that this is really what what we're doing. I mean, in 1984 or Fahrenheit 451. I mean, you know, the the danger of controlling ideas. And what I think is paradoxical to me is that all of these books that parents sometimes just as you said one parent you know is as agitating to ban from school libraries or entire districts only advertises uh you know these these books and 
you are underestimating your children, your your teenage children, or even younger children, as if to say that, well, if we take these books out of school libraries, then they're not going to be able to read them. I mean, it only lets people know what books they have to find. I mean, whether it's buying them themselves secretly at a bookstore or borrowing it from a friend or stealing it, shoplifting, or I hate to encourage pirating of books, but we know that many books are available digitally, free. People are sharing them the way they share music files, PDFs. So, So the books don't become unavailable completely. You do not wipe out books. I mean, we've learned this over centuries that that any effort to do this only increases attention for it. I mean, I think back to, you know, the mid 20th century when books would be banned in Boston or, you know, the Catholic church would, would have books on, you know, prohibited lists. I mean, the novels of, you know, probably Peyton Place or, you know, other, uh, other things like that. And so it terrifies me that, that books are banned. And it also enrages me that people have to then go around these bands as they do to find the very material that parents and school districts are trying to stop them from having. It also, uh, just one last thing, is it doesn't stop anyone from becoming queer or trans or lesbian or gay or to become aware of racial issues in this country. I mean, when you think of all that's happening with the 1619 Project or quote, critical race theory. It doesn't stop anyone from growing up into a queer person any more than not having had these books, you know, when I was growing up, stopped me from becoming gay. I mean, you know, having the books doesn't make you gay and not having the books, you know, doesn't make you straight. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. So, Billy, one of the things, the two points that I want to make sure that we cover. One is uh, after 9-11, we had a event that we put together at the store because we had a lot of parents asking us for books on how to discuss that kind of horrific event with their mm-hmm. children. At what age should you be telling them what, what would make them unnecessarily afraid, what would help them understand it. And Renee McIntyre, who's a psychologist that lives in our community, ran this session for us. And she said something that was a reminder that applies to all of this. And that is, if you're concerned about how your child might absorb information, like about being gay or sexuality, that the best thing to do is make it comfortable for them to discuss. And her recommendation was for a parent and a child to read the book at the same time and then have their own mini book club discussion, because the obvious thing is if kids are going to consider these books bad to be publicly discussed, they're going to nonetheless, as you say, get hold of them. And then they're going to impose their own 
maybe distorted thinking or end up judging themselves harshly in a way that's unnecessary or making them think that they ought to have more freedom to be who they are, but not being able to discuss that because they've been told this book is bad, then that means they're bad. And I I think that this kind of perverse way of thinking by making it illegal or inaccessible, that A, we're really making it inaccessible, or that we're precluding that young person, because it's often young people that we're trying to shape their thinking, will somehow not know about that. I mean, we always laugh when a when a parent comes in and they say, well, I, I don't want my teenager reading a book that has oral sex in it. <laughs> Why? Did you think they never, do you think that a junior high kid in, in the United States in 2023 has not otherwise <laughs> heard right. of this? I mean, it just defies your thinking that there's not other ways to get this information. The opportunity is for a discussion. The other part of banning books that I think is important to think about is this. Reading books from other countries, from people who live different lives, from people who have different orientations, is in the cliched term, gives you the ability to live in another's shoes. Mm -hmm. And there has been oodles of research to show that I might, in generic sense, be opposed to gay people. But if my nephew is gay and I know him and love him and understand him, I don't have a problem with him being gay. So that you end up with this, you know, dichotomy of how you think about it generically, but how you think about it specifically is different. And the more we meet people who are living in another country, thinking about things differently, the research shows we develop more compassion, more empathy, more understanding. And that, to me, is one of the saddest parts of this, that it is by making these books available, we actually improve the possibility of decreasing the polarity that we increasingly see in the country. And that's the part, you know, I say it makes me sad. What it does is make me angry that this is happening. So, uh, so Billy, let's move the conversation to this. How do we stop it? Well, one thing I wanted to say, just as since it's also uh, happening now, I mean, or timely, is what you say about, uh, you know, uh, the more gay people, for example, that, you know, uh, the the different you, know, you feel differently about it. And that's a, an argument that has been ongoing for quite a long time. And, you know, the evidence of it is quite great, as even many, you know, a higher percentage of Republicans, for example, now you know, have gay people in their family are, you know, support gay marriage, even even younger Christian evangelicals support gay marriage. But October 11th is National Coming Out Day. And so that is the impetus behind that day. 
the, the more people who are out, the more people who know, you know, relatives, friends, et cetera, uh, that, that, that they know gay people. And I think that's also one of the upshots of, of the AIDS crisis, I think, in the 80s and 90s in particular, I mean, not that, I mean, the AIDS crisis has not abated, you know, completely, uh, is that people began to know members of their family, neighbors, friends, because as gay men and then other groups also became ill, people knew them and, and, and understood the lives of their friends, families, and neighbors in a way that had been invisible before. So, I mean, you don't want to say that there was any benefit to, to the AIDS crisis. I mean, but that is at least one uh, upshot of it. And National Coming Out Day comes, you know, from that era, from that period. And and so I think you know, the question is, how do we stop it? I think it's interesting to me that, you know, here we are talking on a, a book selling podcast. I mean, obviously, RJ Julia is a bookseller because what it makes me think, and I've seen this, is that, you know, a lot of independent bookstores in particular have displays of books that are banned uh, because they are making them freely available. But then there is an economic uh, disparity that that unfortunately settles in because then it's it's open to, these books are available to people who can afford to buy them or whose family afford to buy them. And they're not necessarily new hardcover books or, you know, coffee table books. I mean, but still, if a book is $12.99 or $10.99 or even $8.99, I mean, that is for many people quite a significant expense and not something that they're able to do on a regular basis. So, so the economic disparity of what of the, the economic inequity of who is affected by these bans is also a very troubling thing. I mean, it seems to me that what we can do is, I mean, agitate and vote. I mean, and as as we've learned over the last few years on on many issues, I mean, including critical race theory, you know, so called because that's that's uh, that's a different term from how it's come to be used by right wing people. Is that you have to vote in school board elections? I mean, and mm. and and the school boards that that control these things. I mean, sometimes it's a very close vote and sometimes it's just one person on a school board. I mean, when you read these stories. So I think I think some of these books are essentials if you can afford to buy them and give them to your children who are curious about them and read them yourself. I mean, to, to be informed. So to kind of wrap this up, I'm going to say things that probably would cause us to speak a little bit longer. But I do think Billy, you raise an interesting point about paying attention to local politics. Mm -hmm. And because school boards and local representatives, this stuff is sort of going on and we're not really paying attention. So one one reminder is for all of us to pay attention because that's where that's happening. Number two, a few years for banned books, what we did was put brown paper up in the store windows because everybody has a reason, or a lot of people, why this book ought to be banned. And if we banned the books that every, any one person wanted, there would be no books because somebody's got an objection to everything. And the last thing I would say is one of my top 25 books of all times 
is The Bluest Eye, which is Toni Morrison's first novel written in 1970. And it shows up always. It's got very difficult topics, but I cannot think of a book that more vividly and provocatively and brilliantly puts you in the shoes of this young Black girl in Ohio who is desperate to have blue eyes so she could accept herself because that would mean she was white. So I will leave it at that. I hope everybody listening reads Bluest Eye if you haven't read it yet or give it as a gift to someone or give it to your local school so that uh, kids uh, can take it home for free. Well, I don't know how efficiently or clearly we covered this, but I, I hope we, we've got people starting to think about this. You've been listening to Just the Right Book Shorts. I'm Roxanne Cody. I've been joined by Billy Goldstein. Thank you, Billy. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.